You're listening to Mind Labs, an open platform for artists. For more information, visit www.mindlabs.co.uk. I'm standing at the foot of Sheffield's Cholera Monument, a sort of neo-Gothic needle-like construction that sticks up from a small area of parkland above Sheffield train station. Stretched out in front of me is the city centre, while somewhere beneath my feet lie the long decomposed remains of some several hundred men, women and children. These are the victims of Sheffield's first cholera epidemic that hit the city back in 1832. I'm here to begin a journey that will take me across the city, as I visit the places where Sheffielders at the beginning of the 19th century laid their dead to rest, a rest frequently disturbed by the shovels of the city's body snatchers. I'll be trying to understand what the treatment of Sheffield's dead can tell us about this turbulent period in the city's history and uncover the stories behind its headstones. On this journey, we'll be visiting the final resting places of violent Victorian radicals, the dens of body snatchers and the squalid slums of a city at the brink of the modern world. But the journey, and in many ways the story of modern Sheffield, begins here at the Cholera Monument. Cholera arrived in the city back in 1832, just as Sheffield was beginning to take shape as a booming industrial centre. And it's no coincidence that cholera arrived when it did. In fact, the deaths of the people down here under my feet can tell us a great deal about the birth of the city down there at the foot of the hill. To find out about Sheffield and the outbreak of the cholera epidemic, I spoke to local historian and author Peter Machen. to understand that Sheffield at this time was growing like mad. During the 19th century, the population of Sheffield actually doubled every 40 years. So, I don't know if you can imagine living in a place like that. We've never experienced anything like it. But this is exactly what happened every 40 years in the 19th century. So we start with a very small town of 45,000 at the beginning of the 19th century. By 1830, it's 90,000, and then uh, 200,000, and then 400,000 by the turn of the 20th century. So, with no proper public administration, it was still run almost like uh, a manorial borough. There were the town trustees and a couple of constables. So, no proper public administration. And the services didn't catch up with this population right until the end of the 19th century. They were always one step behind. So, the water supply, for instance, to uh, the cottage properties, the back-to-back properties that crowded the centre of Sheffield, was completely inadequate. Water supply could only be supplied to about a third of the uh, streets in the town. And even then, it was only switched on Uh, for two or three days in the week. The housing itself was completely inadequate. It was very, very cramped, very overcrowded. You can imagine what the sanitation was like. Completely inadequate. The rivers were polluted. Um, So we get a picture here of almost a Wild West town developing. Completely inadequate provision for people. And so it was inevitable that once this dreadful 
disease, the, the bacteria had, had actually got a hold. It could actually spread like wildfire. So Sheffield had become a perfect breeding ground for disease. But how did cholera get here in the first place? The cholera epidemic really um, had started uh, on the continent. It, it, it's always assumed, it's not quite sure, but, it, but it's assumed that it actually came from the Far East. It was rife in St Petersburg uh, and arrived in this country uh, in Sunderland by uh, a, a, a seaman of some sort. Um, as far as Sheffield goes, it had hit other cities. Leeds had been particularly badly hit. Liverpool had been badly hit. Manchester. Sheffield had escaped until uh, June 1832, uh, when it was said that a man called Foster actually arrived from Thorn and brought the disease and from then, from July right through to October, the disease was absolutely rife. And of course it was the people in the overcrowded parts of Sheffield, in the ponds particularly, at the lower end of Park Hill, where sanitation was particularly poor, where overcrowding was particularly bad, that was struck really very, very harshly indeed. So it's the expansion of the cities due to industrialization that allowed diseases like cholera to thrive like never before. But it's also the explosion of trade related to industrialization that allowed cholera to spread so quickly once it got going. More and more goods moving across the planet meant more and more ships to carry them, and so more and more people at sea carrying their own deadly cargo of cholera. The cholera epidemic can perhaps be understood as the shadow of industrialization relying for its spread on those very same factors that caused cities like Sheffield to be born. But it's hard to imagine just how terrifying the epidemic must have been. Cholera is a horrifying disease that still kills hundreds of thousands of people every year, principally in the developing world. It can kill a perfectly healthy person within a day of infection, due to dehydration brought on by acute diarrhoea. The bacteria causes this diarrhoea in order to contaminate water sources and to transmit the disease on to further victims. Good sanitation is the principal weapon against cholera, but back in 1832, no one understood this, and even if they had, it's doubtful that much would have been done to keep the disease from arriving. Up until the epidemic, the government had taken something of a laissez-faire approach to things like public health, and even quarantines were fairly lax in part due to the interruption they caused in trade. But the terror of this disease forced the government into action. This began as something relatively minor, but would eventually cause a fundamental shift in the role and responsibility of the state. When the cholera uh, actually broke out, um, first of all, no one would admit that cholera had actually, uh, had actually broken out in Sheffield. Uh, as it as happened in this was a pattern in in every city that everyone was reluctant at first to admit that this is what was happening. Why was that so? Um, because of the fear of it, because of the stigma of it, and then very quickly a board of health was established. There was provision at this time to set up a board of health and some funding for this. Uh, now you've got to understand that there was wasn't, however any public administration to do this. So it, it was left to the great and the good who administered the sort of um, 
affairs of the little town in a, in a fairly ad hoc fashion at this time. Ad hoc as it might have been, this was the beginning of something important. Boards like this were being set up all over Britain under instruction from a central committee in London. And this was really the first time that central government would get involved in local affairs like this, and a key step towards the kind of government we know today. And it wouldn't stop there. This and subsequent outbreaks of cholera would prompt the first collections of statistics on things like causes of death and their relation to living conditions. And it would force the government to build sewer systems, some of the biggest civil engineering projects that had ever been undertaken. But back in 1832, the lack of understanding regarding the cause of the cholera meant that little good could really be done. It wouldn't be until decades later that John Snow would adopt a modern scientific approach to tracking down the causes of the disease, and famously remove the handle of the Broad Street pump. At the time, most people thought that the disease was caused by foul smells, or miasma, and Sheffield would certainly have had plenty of those. But there was also a moral component to people's attitudes towards the cause of the disease. I think the attitude that uh, that cholera was actually... Um, contracted through uh, dissolute ways, I think was an, uh, an attitude that was held very widely amongst the community indeed, yes. Um, and I, I think that it was only really later on when people like uh, John Blake, the master cutler himself, contracted the disease and died very, very quickly, within 24 hours, um, that this view began to be questioned and people realised that uh, it wasn't just the poor. But of course it was the poor who were hit the worst because it was they who lived in the, in the worst conditions. John Blake, the master cutler, is the only victim whose name appears on the cholera monument. The rest of the bodies go unmarked. Perhaps you'd have found some reassurance in the fact that his death caused people to re-evaluate their superstitious views. In a small way, this contributed towards the search for a scientific understanding of the disease that would eventually teach people how to fight it. Perhaps then the cholera monument can be seen not only as a memorial to the hundreds who died in the epidemic, but as a tribute to the great cost in human suffering that reaching the modern world has had. We're moving on from the monument now, but there is still one more part of its story to tell. For while Sheffield's Board of Health might have been trying to help the people of Sheffield, there may have been an altogether more sinister element to their work, operating just below the surface. There were uh, riots when people uh, were wishing to actually, uh, when the board were actually hoping to actually take people to the house of recovery. Because people were suspicious. They'd been suspicious for a while of what was happening um, about dead bodies in Sheffield. The anatomists, the uh, particularly all over end from the... Um, from the medical school had got a very bad reputation amongst the local population who suspected that they were conducting uh, post-mortems on the bodies, something which was absolutely frowned on by the local population. Um, there was even a suspicion uh, that people were being carted off before they were actually dead. It's Hall Overend and Sheffield's notorious anatomist that I want to investigate next. So I've come down here to Air Street, where the Sheffield Anatomy School once stood. Air Street today is a busy main road leading out to the town centre, 
Today it's mostly multi-storey car parks and construction sites. But the building that once housed the anatomy school was not demolished by property developers, but torn down and set ablaze by an angry mob back in 1835. To find out about this incident, I spoke to Fred Donnelly, Professor of History at the University of New Brunswick, Canada, and the author of a paper on the event. And this episode uh, took place on the 26th of January, 1835, at 7 o'clock in the morning. A thousand people or so attacked the School of Anatomy, uh, but uh, a smaller group of about 30 men and youth went inside the building, threw the books and furniture out into the street and set them ablaze. And then they went after the doors, the staircases, the wood panels, the molding, etc. And they started a huge bonfire, which actually endangered the other buildings. Uh, attempts by the constables, the firemen, uh, were unsuccessful um, in stopping the proceedings. They had to call in the military, the riot act was read, and it wasn't until about noon that order was restored, but only temporarily. The crowd returned around 2 p.m., did more damage, and broke the windows of several other buildings. Total damage was about uh, 577 pounds sterling, or uh, approximately the cost of uh, an actual building in those days. Uh, this is a curious episode, given the fact that uh, most people respect the medical profession, and Great Britain had just undergone a cholera epidemic and uh, needed all the medical men it could possibly uh, have. So we we need to look for uh, an explanation for what appears to be on the surface, apparently anyways, uh, irrational behavior. Well, th there is uh, a number, there are a number of things underlying uh, this uh, episode. And there were similar episodes in Cambridge, in Hull, in Manchester at this time as well. And what's going on here is uh, a concern over uh, an issue uh, of a shortage of bodies or cadavers for medical research and uh, medical education. Uh, it is uh, said at this time that for medical education, perhaps 1,200 uh, bodies would be needed for dissection in uh, Great Britain. Uh, only 900 were available, and what was happening was certain people were not only digging up uh, bodies in uh, graveyards and selling them to medical schools for about 10 pounds sterling was the going price and of course the fresher the better um, uh, but also there had been sensational cases both in Edinburgh and in London of persons actually killing individuals uh, to sell their bodies uh, for uh, medical dissection in schools of anatomy. So there, there was this almost panic situation uh, in the country that this was going on, this sort of serial killing for a profit uh, of people who were homeless, people who were lonely, people who could be uh, singled out, who didn't have too many friends and could be intoxicated and then smothered and then sold off for their body. The reason people were willing to go to such awful lengths to acquire bodies for dissection, and why the anatomists were willing to pay so highly for them, is broadly speaking an issue of growing demand and shortage of supply. 
As we've heard, Sheffield at this time was on the rise. A growing population meant a growing need for doctors and the bodies that were needed to teach them anatomy. In particular, the rapidly growing middle classes created a new base of people who could afford the services of a doctor and the education required to become one. On the supply side, things are a little more gruesome. Up until 1832, the only bodies legally permitted to the anatomists were those of hanged murderers. This was nowhere near enough for their needs, and so they were forced to outsource. High demand meant high prices, and in an age of widespread poverty, this was incentive enough, and so the careers of the body snatchers and murderers like the infamous Burke and Hare were born. But why would the law restrict the practice of dissection in this way, and why would it prescribe being dissected after being hung as a punishment in the first place? To understand this, we need to look at the beliefs people at the time had about the relationship between the body and the soul. Going back to the 1830s, uh, people yeah, were much more concerned out of uh, popular views and also in the religious views of the time that there was something called the soul and it had a physicality and that if you chopped up a person's body, it may eliminate or compromise their soul. They, they thought of burial customs somewhat differently than we do today. They thought of ritual cleansing and dressing the body, um, burying it in the ground, and allowing it to decay naturally as part of a spiritual process, which we perhaps don't quite appreciate today. And therefore, grave robbing and dissecting bodies was all very offensive to them. One of the curious things about all of this is that while the digging up and dissection of bodies was mortally offensive to many people, and while the anatomists were legally limited to using only the bodies of criminals, body snatching itself was not really illegal. It turned out, in evidence given before the Parliamentary Commission in 1828, that uh, a corpse is not property. Therefore, to steal a corpse is not a crime because it's not property. And, and of course, people were outraged over this. I mean, how can that be? You know, Uncle Bill dies and he's in a grave and someone digs him up and sells him and it's not a crime? How can that? It's impossible, you know? It's, a, it's an affront to any kind of morality that you could possibly imagine. And, and But the law says... Um, corpse is not property and I mean you'd have better luck saying uh, the body snatcher damaged the coffin because that's your property. The fact that bodies became commodities for purchase and sale and the fact that the law protected property but not people's most fundamental desires and beliefs says a lot about the prevalence of capitalist thinking at the time. But it also seems that what we're seeing with this black market in cadavers is much the same thing that we saw with the cholera outbreak. A society and economy expanding faster than legislation could or would react, and relying instead on ad hoc solutions. But as with the cholera outbreak, the advent of a crisis forced the state to start looking for solutions. This time the crisis came in the form of the infamous Burke and Hare murders and the later spree in London. Dozens of people were murdered and sold to anatomists who didn't ask any questions about where the bodies were coming from. In response to this, the government not only had the culprits hung, and of course dissected, but also brought in a piece of legislation to try and provide anatomists with a sufficient supply of bodies. There had been passed through Parliament in an effort to address this problem, something called the Anatomy Act, 
And this was a piece of legislation that was intended to find new sources for these um, bodies needed for medical and uh, uh, medical research and medical education. Um, it it passed through Parliament and. It had in it a clause that uh, it didn't quite say so, but its intention clearly was that uh, if you died in the poorhouse and you had not specifically left directions that you were not to have your body dissected, then the overseer of the poorhouse could send your body for dissection at the local medical school. Um, this caused an, uh, an outcry. The poor were going to be uh, going to have their bodies dissected, uh, not the rich. And it was class legislation or legislation that was unsympathetic to the, uh, the poor. It's no wonder then that large parts of the population felt real anger towards the anatomists. Not only was there the real fear that they might end up on the dissectionist slab and so be condemned to a blighted afterlife, but there must have also been a degree of anger at what the act represented. Poor people were ruthlessly exploited by the better off, practically from cradle to grave. Now their exploitation would continue beyond the grave as well. Even before the Anatomy Act, poor people had made up a disproportionate number of those who had ended up on the anatomist table. Richer people could afford tougher coffins and deeper graves, and even metal cages and armed guards, while the poor were buried in groups under a few inches of soil. But with the Anatomy Act, this exploitation was codified in law, and this by a government so corrupt and so unrepresentative of people's wishes that agitation was going on across the country for reform to the way the electoral system was run. Indeed, the Anatomy Act is almost the last act to be brought in before the Great Reform, which would grant at least a few more people a say in what the government could do. The actions of the crowd on Air Street are then those of a group of people struggling to have their wishes respected by one of the only means that was available to them. But the cause of the riot also had a local dimension. Uh, there was a local opponent, uh, Samuel Roberts. Uh, he was an opponent of the Anatomy Act, and he'd written uh, against it. He was a middle-class gentleman. Uh, he'd written pamphlets against the Anatomy Act. And by coincidence, he was um, an executor uh, of an estate which um, owned the premises uh, of the School of Anatomy. And he claimed that uh, the doctors were in illegal occupation uh, of the site in Air Street where the actual disturbance occurred. So this threw more um, fuel on the fire. Uh, not only were all these other things bubbling around, but uh, uh, people in the town knew that uh, there was a claim that the doctors were illegally occupying uh, the site in Air Street. So all these things converged together and all we needed was some triggering incident, some spark that would light the fire and set it off. Well, uh, on the night of the 26th of January, there was uh, such an episode. Um, a woman was heard uh, at the School of Anatomy to be screaming and shrieking and yelling, murder, murder. Uh, people interpreted this that uh, a woman was being dragged in there uh, to be killed uh, and to have her body dissected. It turned out it was an error. It was the 
caretaker of the School of Anatomy engaged uh, in a drunken episode of domestic violence. He was beating his wife and uh, she became hysterical and started shouting murder. Uh, the people in the area heard this and misinterpreted the situation and that led to the episode uh, of the great uh, popular disturbance attacking and destroying the uh, School of Anatomy. Incidentally, uh, subsequent inquiries showed that there were uh, dissected or partially dissected bodies on the premises, but all had been uh, legally obtained under the terms of the uh, existing Anatomy Act. So um, this was a uh, an inflammatory situation triggered off by uh, a very large misunderstanding. So what lessons should we draw from this curious incident? Was the Anatomy Act a somewhat thoughtless step in the right direction, or a cruel piece of oppressive legislation? The Anatomy Act episode and the body snatching episode leaves us with one of those curious conundrums where you have a conflict which came to a head in the 1830s uh, and two sides battled it out uh, and yet when we look at it in retrospect we can see that each side had its point and to some extent each side was right uh, those who were in favor of the anatomy act did suppress some of the murderous violence that was going on and did positively contribute to medical education those who were opposed pointed out quite rightly that this was unfair legislation and it did not take account of the concerns of the, those people who were um, more likely to end up in the workhouse and that is basically uh, as working people would have uh, seen it that could be any one of us My final destination on this journey is here in Sheffield's General Cemetery. This is a really beautiful spot tucked away just off Ecclesville Road. It's a real pleasure to take a walk here, among high trees and elaborate monuments half lost in the undergrowth, and providing a bit of tranquil green space on the edge of smelly, noisy Sheffield was one of the original intentions of the designers. But this cemetery was built for somewhat more pressing reasons. I've come here to the cemetery to meet Joe Pye and Ben Crane of the Friends of the General Cemetery, to find out more about why it was built. It was started in 1934, it was opened in 1836. Uh, the impulse to have a garden cemetery like this came from the fact that as the, as it, uh, because of industrialisation, as the city expanded, there simply wasn't enough room in the old church graveyards to bury all the dead. And the church graveyards became congested and rather unpleasant. When Ben says unpleasant, this is something of an understatement. Just as the people in Sheffield's slums were being forced into more and more cramped living conditions, so the dead started to pack out the graveyards and they were literally bursting at the seams. What we think, I think, was the um, 
the cathedral because it's the only one with a raised cemetery. There was a report oh. that stated that there was um, a revolting effusion that ran down the walls into the streets, that when the graves were open, because the soil is clay, the bodies were still articulate, the flesh was, flesh was still on them. And of course they weren't buried in graves, in, in coffins, they were buried in uh, shrouds. And in common with most other places, the grave diggers had to be partially paid in strong liquor because it was the only way you could get them to go into the graves. You know, they got a top to liquor, I'd want the whole barrel. But the builders of the cemetery were setting out to do more than simply cope with an overflow of bodies. Um, also, there was the problem of grave robbing, uh, which was endemic in the whole of the country. Sheffield was particularly problematic because it was one of the first places to have an anatomy school, two anatomy schools actually. Uh, so they wanted somewhere that they could actually secure with high walls and fences and armed guards. There, there was also uh, the fact that um, you had to be buried in a churchyard and the increasing middle classes in Sheffield were largely not Church of England, they were non-conformists. So they did not want to be buried according to the rights of a different sect. And most of the engineers, uh, solicitors, doctors and so on, uh, in Sheffield certainly, tended to be uh, Methodists or Baptists or Presbyterians or something like that. Uh, they had their own chapels, but apart from uh, the small chapel on Norfolk Street, uh, I don't think there was any other non-conformist burial ground, so they were forced to conform uh, after the, you know, when they died. And that was something that they found objectionable. So this cemetery is an expression of religious freedom, but it's also a statement of power. A declaration of independence on behalf of a growing middle class, no longer under the thumb of the landowning aristocracy and their younger sons, who made up the better part of the Church of England clergy. A middle class that was building this new world on the power of self-made industry, rather than living off the wealth of inherited land. We have to remember that at this time there was still a great deal of discrimination against people who weren't part of the Church of England, particularly against those in the professional classes. If you were a Baptist, Methodist, Quaker or anything else for that matter, you couldn't receive a degree from Oxford or Cambridge, which would really get in your way if you wanted to practice something like medicine. This meant that the nonconformists had to find their own ways of getting by, outside of the establishment. Judging by the opulence of some of the tombs here, this was something they managed pretty well at. Here on the western edge of the cemetery, we can see this struggle between establishment and nonconformity, manifested in the construction of the cemetery's second church, a Church of England church built in addition to the nonconformist one at the cemetery's centre. Joe explained to me what this building is doing here. The bishops had got through an Act of Parliament to prevent anybody who was living on the parish being buried in non-consecrated ground, and the Sheffield General Cemetery Company had um, a contract with local workhouses and parish um, uh, committees that anybody, you know, that their paupers would be buried here at a rate of five bob a head, which was a steady income for the General Cemetery because the, the wealthy had never taken it up. It was really, although they wanted the middle classes and upwards, what they got 
were the artisans, the skilled tradesmen. They also got a lot of very poor people. Ground could only be consecrated if it contained a Church of England church. So in order to hold on to its income from burying paupers, the General Cemetery Company had to erect a new Church of England church. These seem like some pretty sly moves on the part of the bishops, and some pretty shrewd ones on the part of the cemetery's proprietors. And it also seems like another case of bodies and burial being struggled over as sources and symbols of financial and political power. I wanted to understand why there was this struggle, and why the nonconformists constituted such a large proportion of this growing and often politically radical middle class. I think it's because um, the nonconformists laid, in general, laid a great emphasis on education and on individuality, which the um, Anglican Church did not do. And so in most of the industrial cities, you will find that the rising, um, what shall I say, professional classes were very largely nonconformists. We can really see this nonconformist individuality here in the cemetery, not only in the striking design of some of the memorials, but also in the characters of some of the people buried here. We have people like Samuel Holbury, a member of the Chartist movement. Chartism was the first mass labour movement the world had ever seen, a movement that fought for a fairer system of government and universal suffrage, although their version of universal makes no mention of women. Holbury, at least according to his accusers, was guilty of planning an armed uprising to seize control of Sheffield by force. But Holbury was betrayed before the uprising could take place, and later died from the harsh treatment he received in prison. His funeral, here at the cemetery, was attended by thousands. Today you can read Holbury's name, not only on this headstone, but also on a plaque on the side of the fountains in the Peace Gardens, right in front of the town hall. A somewhat grander memorial belongs to Mark Firth, a man who rose from quite modest beginnings to become one of Sheffield's richest steel magnates and the founder of what would become the University of Sheffield, the main hall of which still bears his name. But it's not just the grandity of some of the memorials that strike you as you walk through this cemetery, it's also the peculiarity of its architecture. It's not a Victorian cemetery, it predates, so you've got um, really Regency ideas and the, the, idea, the Regency ideas were very much classical, oriental, um, slightly exotic. And not long before um, the Battle of the Nile, I think it was 1809, 1810, uh, Napoleon had been stranded in Egypt and his soldiers, fossicking around and shooting at bits of stone, discovered all sorts of temples and things like that. So things that were Egyptian became popular too. So you've got a combination of the classical Greek, because a well-educated gentleman knew about classical Greek and did the grand tour and went to Pompeii and all that sort of thing. But the new um, historic ideas of Egyptian, so you've got Egyptian-shaped um, doorways, which are sort of trapezoid um, triangles with the tops chopped off and the classical pillars and the lion gate which is copied from uh, Mycenae and things like that. I'm just going to say that uh, some even older ideas come in. Up, up, at the, up on Cemetery Road we have the serpent gate with mm. the snake eating its own tail which is uh, a very old symbol of um, rebirth. So we find pagan icons here, icons linked to the kind of folk beliefs we heard about earlier. 
the beliefs that put people in fear of how dissection would affect their rebirth in the afterlife. But we also find all of this Egyptian-inspired architecture, which emerged, as Joe says, from Napoleon's exploits along the Nile and his subsequent defeat there by British forces. Napoleon had gone down to Egypt in a bid to eventually cut off British access to India. This would put a stranglehold on those trade routes that had allowed Britain to expand into an industrial nation and had helped transport the cholera to Sheffield. Napoleon had taken with him a whole detachment of scholars to collect artefacts from ancient Egypt, not least because of Napoleon's interest in establishing France's imperial lineage from the Egyptians through the ancient Greeks to the Romans. When England defeated France at the Battle of the Nile, the relics they had looted were seized. Instead of leaving these antiquities to the people of Egypt, the British shipped them back to London for triumphant display in the British Museum, where they were explicitly exhibited as symbols of British victory over its old rival, the French. Thousands flocked to see the relics, sending a wave of Egyptomania spreading across Britain. So sure, the presence of these Egyptian motifs indicates the Regency taste for the exotic. But I think the designers may have also included them as a celebration of British imperial power. I'm ending this journey here at the cemetery's Serpent Gate, beneath the carved stone image of a winged orb representing the sun. All this talk on death and dissection has reminded me to go and do something that I've been meaning to get round to for ages. So I'm heading down to my local library to pick up an organ donation card. To me this just makes sense, that people in need should get my organs once I'm dead and no longer have any need for them. But I wonder what the people buried here in the cemetery would have made of my quite casual decision to allow my organs to ride around in the bodies of strangers after I'm dead and, I suppose, gone. <laughs>